This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. This episode of Reading Live is sponsored by Scribd. Scribd is the subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to a library of more than half a million ebooks and audiobooks. Head over to scribd.com reading to get started with the free month. Scribd has books from some of the best publishers around, from major houses like HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster, and HMH, to innovative small presses like McSweeney's, Counterpoint, and Tin House. With a subscription, you'll even get access to more than 30,000 audiobooks, including some of the biggest new releases. Even more importantly, Scribd's make sure you can find your way to new books you're going to love. They've got hundreds of collections curated by their team of editors, and as you read, they'll tailor their recommendations for you based on their books that you've loved, or you haven't. Go to scribd.com slash reading right now, and they'll set you up with a free month to get started. That's 30 days of unlimited reading and listening, and you'll be supporting Book Riot, so that's what we call a win-win. That's S-C-R-I-B-D dot com slash reading. Thanks so much to Scribd for sponsoring Reading Lives. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 95, and we're recording on Thursday, February 26th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're some of the editors of BookRiot.com. Happy Thursday, Rebecca. Happy Thursday to you. Uh, you guys did a great job last week. It was fun to listen to you. It sounds like you had a good time. Yeah, we have a good time when you know, I think Amanda and I get a little, you know, cats away, mice will play <laughs> <laughs> when it's the two of us. Um, so, And it's always fun. We have ridiculous conversations with each other on a daily basis. So, you know, it's nice to bring that to the people. But I'm yeah. glad you're back this week. Thanks. I, I enjoyed my week off, but I'm glad to be back as well. Um, all right, let's get right into it. Uh, we've got we've got a couple of book write related follow up things to do. So the first of all is that each year um, – I get listeners probably don't know this, but Book Riot is a company actually that's owned by a larger company that owns mostly Book Riot, but also panels or sister site, mm-hmm. which is about, uh, you know, uh, comics and graphic novels and basically sequential art. But those two come those two sites together are owned by Riot New Media Group. And in our charter, when Clint and I started the company, we built in from the very beginning that two percent of our revenues. So that's not profits. That's all the money we take in, even if we don't make any money, which we don't really because we are growing and spend it, but whatever, goes to a charity that we pick in conjunction with our readers. And the way the process works is we took nominations um, on the site. People sent us a bunch of interesting nominations. We have a set of criteria. Um, and then we, uh, as a staff, looked through them and we sort of internally picked a few that we'd be, we'd be okay with any of these three and then we let the readers decide the, the final three. So it's kind of an interplay between the staff and the readers of the site where we're down to our final three um, candidates. And uh, if you want to have a say in where 2% of our money for 2015 will go, um, go look. At, well, there's a, a link in the show notes. But the finals are first book, Girls Incorporated and Pencils of Promise. Um, and they are each great uh, – uh, they're great – Nominate, nominees, it's kind of hard to pick between them, I found. Yeah, they do really different, but also similar 
things. I would be happy with our money going to any of them. Any one of those. That's kind of the idea is that it's up to the readers to, to make the hard choice that we don't have to make. Uh, last year, our partner was Open Books. Books. We had a great um, relationship with them. You can't be a charitable partner two years in a row. We decided that early on as well, just so to spread it around as much as we could. Um, but please help us vote. It matters to us that the money we give since so much of what we do is, um, well, almost all of what we do is dependent on readers to like it, that it's important to us that readers have a say in where that money goes and feel good about supporting Book Riot and their sites and blah, well, yeah, blah. And especially because you're looking at the site, you're listening to the podcast. If you subscribe to the quarterly box or you ever buy anything from the Book Riot store, any of that, 2% of all of those dollars go yeah. to this charitable partnership. So you are, um, even if in some indirect way, um, by being in the Book Riot community, you are contributing to uh, to this charity. And so we want to hear from you about which one you would like to direct those funds to. Well, the voting as we get towards 100 episodes, like basically yes. two, two episodes worth of sponsorships have mm-hmm. gone towards, you know, our charitable partners. Speaking of 100 episodes, see, I, that's... Look at the, you. I mean, you just, you, you see pieces, you see the whole board, and then you put them together. <laughs> Mind like water, Mind baby. like water. Um, our 100th episode is coming up. We're asking for questions. We've got some good ones. We could use a half dozen more or so. We're, we're going to have Amanda, I think, come on for a little mm-hmm. bit, or maybe the whole show. I don't know if she knows that yet, but Amanda, <laughs> um, get ready. Have a and, little party. Uh, we got, we've got some good questions. You can send multiple questions. We're going to pick the ones that we think will make the best show, frankly. So if we don't talk about it, it's not because we are embarrassed or can think you're dumb. lives, work, book stuff. Yeah, you know, whatever. So we got one about what podcasts we listened to recently. We got one about literary tattoos. We got one about... Um, our own favorite books and things like that. So it should Mm. be a good show. But we're coming up. So you've got a couple more weeks to think about it. Um, And that's coming up soon. You can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Probably don't don't, um, tweet at us about it because those things can get lost. And I'm making a file with all the emails about uh, episode 100 questions. So that's the easiest place to put them there. All right. We're in the show. Oh, we have a couple more follow-up things. Uh, we should do our sponsor first. Oh, we do a sponsor. Okay, tell us about our sponsor. Uh, Scribd is back this week as our sponsor. Scribd is a subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to a library of more than half a million ebooks and audiobooks, and they recently added comics as well. Scribd works with some of the best publishers around, the names you know, major houses like HarperCollins, which uh, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that they are in on pretty much all of the interesting digital reading experiments. Simon and Schuster, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and there are small presses like McSweeney's, Counterpoint, and Tin House. With the subscription, you get access to all those half million ebooks from big houses and small houses alike, and also 30,000 audiobooks that include some of the biggest new releases. Um, Scribd also makes it really easy to find your way to the books you're going to love. They have hundreds of curated collections um, put together by their teams of editors. These are people with ideas who read books, making lists. It's not algorithm driven, but their algorithms do pay attention to what you like and what you don't like, and they make recommendations based on your ratings of the books that you read and listen to in Scribd. So you can go find the stuff you've been wanting to read and you can also discover new stuff. Um, I've been finding that the e-reading apps that I use are great for discovery and Scribd is right in line with that. 
Go to Scribd.com slash Book Riot right now, and they'll set you up with a free month to get started. So 30 days of unlimited reading, listening, and comics reading, um, especially if, like a lot of us on the book side, you're new to comics. This is a great way to dip your toe in without any risk. It's a win-win situation for everybody. Scribd is S-C-R-I-B-D.com slash Book Riot. Again, gets you 30 days free trial unlimited ebooks, audiobooks, and comics. So give it a shot. And thanks to them for sponsoring the show. So I was poking around the audiobook selection yeah. the other day. Um, someone tweeted at us that they had tried Scribd because we'd mentioned it, and they were really digging into the audiobooks. They mentioned a couple titles. I couldn't find the tweet, so I went and looked at Scribd. A mm-hmm. couple of the books we've talked about recently. Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay is available on audio. Mm-hmm. Very interesting read. Um, one of your and my shared favorites Donna Tartt's The Secret History is available there on audio. Oh, that would be great on audio. Very interesting on audio. Um, also, Ann Patchett's, really the, the novel that broke her out, Bel Canto, uh, is available on audio. So there's really interesting stuff here. There's classics. There's Carson McCullers, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. You can, get, you can try that out. So one thing that's different about, you know, you said you like it for discovery. And a lot of people I've talked to recently, I, I'm a completionist. So if I start something and mm. finish it, not everyone is like me, which is unfortunate both for them and the world at large. But one thing that's hard about audiobooks, if you're sort of a taster, is that it hasn't been super easy till now to like listen to audiobook for 45 minutes and decide it's not for you. Mm. You sort of have to buy it, mm-hmm. download it, commit. With, with a subscription service, you listen to 20 minutes of, say, um, this is what I've got here. Oh, maybe you're not sure that um, you wanted to listen to Brave New World on audio. That, that's available here. You can try it. If it works out, great great, continue doing it. But if you're like, I'm not into this, I don't like fiction on audio, whatever, you can you can give it up. That's the thing I think about subscription that's sort of categorically different than buying a book. Is it that you can really dip, you can, you can take a trial that's as long as the whole book, you know, really, that, that's really what it is. You can get through, I guess you could, you could stop before the last word and technically call it a trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's right there. It's super easy for you to do. There's no waiting lines. You can do some of this stuff through libraries. I don't think some of the audiobook selections, that's instant. You don't have to go and wait. You don't have to go and hold. You don't have to give it back over time. You know, you pay some, but you get some premium features back. And if you're a power reader, then the eight ninety nine a month that you'll pay after your free month trial for unlimited ebook reading and audiobook listening mm-hmm. and comics checking out is that I mean that's really hard to beat. That's like less than the cost of one paperback. Well, book audiobooks are expensive per too. month, and audiobooks are so expensive. And this is ex- like exactly what you were saying for discovery and for there's no risk in trying something new out. Um, we mm-hmm. talk on the show a lot about the cost of ebooks from big houses, and uh, one of the books that's available on Scribd is this is the story of a happy marriage by mm. Ann Patchett which is a collection of essays came out last year it was a hardcover from penguin the ebook was probably when when it was in hardcover the ebook was probably like 15.99 and if you've not read Ann Patchett before or you like her fiction but you haven't read her nonfiction this is a really low risk way to try that out you don't have to commit the 15.99 or the 11.99 to the ebook to get a chance you can you know dip into it read an essay move on to something else, come back to it a few months later, yep. never, never, ever come back to it. Um, I find with the book subscriptions that I start a whole lot of books and then I don't finish most of them. Very but I like, But I like that I can start a whole bunch and it's helping me, you know, branch out without feeling like it's such a, it, like it's such a commitment to make that experimental step into something else because 
I'm going to give my, you know, 10 bucks a month or whatever to the service. Um, and so Scribd is making it easy. You can, you know, poke around if you're trying to read diversely, uh, like we're talking about at Book Riot a lot uh, this excellent year. Excellent point. You know, you can experiment with authors and genres and types of books that you've never read before, and you can do it within this environment that's built to recommend stuff to you to make them discoverable. But also, if you try five or ten and you don't like those books, they're still a bajillion available mm -hmm. to you, and you haven't lost anything. You haven't thrown away any of your money. Yeah, I'm going to take a look for – Scribd has some sponsorships with us going into the future for a while. I'll take a look at the comics for a while and have some picks for you there because you can do that as well, especially if you know a lot of us are just um, – I'm pretty deep into audiobooks right now, though it's only been a couple of years I've been in. But I'm a little bit of a – I don't know, rut is maybe pejorative. I'm in a pattern of what I like to listen to on audiobook, and it's mostly nonfiction of a certain kind. And I've heard other people say to that that I only read, I only like fiction on audio. Mm -hmm. um, but with a subscription service, you can try a couple of different things you haven't tried before. One thing that's actually pretty good on audio, I mean, it's, it's not a surprise, is poetry. Um, oh, and so I hadn't you, even thought of that. So that's one thing where if you want to try some poetry, try a different genre, try a different format. It's just the, the stakes are so low that it kind of becomes fun. Um, just to try something new, and there's no pressure to keep doing it. All right, that's our Scribd. Scribd.com. Oh, what's the I, – I, I've had the read. What's the – Scribd.com slash Book Riot. Book Riot. Boy, you'd think I could remember that. But uh, thanks so much for Scribd sponsoring the show. If you try something on Scribd that you liked, let us know, um, and we can pass it on to other people too. Oh, Daring Greatly's on here. I want to yeah, listen to that. Daring Greatly. I know I've, you did. I've, been, I've yeah. had that on my, my keep it in mind list for a while. Maybe I'll do that on Scribd uh, here before too long. In my year of nonfiction. Okay. Uh, so where, updates. Where, where are we going here? We're updates. We were in, let's, you want to talk about Facebook? Let me tell you about Oh, yeah. So you've been tracking this a little bit closer I than I have. Well, yeah. Amanda and I talked last week about the new selection in the Facebook book club, which is On Immunity by Eula Biss. Um, I read it last year when it came out. I really loved it. And uh, when they first announced this Facebook year of books thing, where every two weeks Mark Zuckerberg is going to pick a thing that he's going to read and recommend it to Facebook and people can talk about it and they're doing live chats with the authors. Um, you and I both said we were going to keep an eye on selections and maybe we would try to participate in um, one or two. So... I loved On Immunity and given all of the conversation in the culture very recently about vaccines and debates that are taking place, I thought I would, that would, this will be the one that I do. So I'm revisiting it. Um, I think it's an interesting and timely selection for Zuckerberg. Um, Amanda and I got into that some last week, like if at all he's considering what people are talking about on Facebook as a guide for how to pick the books that he recommends to Facebook. This You, you couldn't really get more right than picking a book about. <laughs> it would be hard um, to. Yeah. And it's not um, some of the press about it has been like Zuckerberg comes out swinging at anti-vaxxers. And uh, that's not on immunity. Um, this goes back and forth, struggling with uh, her sort of logical understanding of vaccines and herd immunity and how for it to work. It's kind of a social contract that yep. people enter into. We don't just get vaccinated for ourselves. We get vaccinated to protect the people around us as well. Um, but balancing that with her fears as a new mother about uh, what vaccinating her child could be, the, the ways in which that could be damaging. And she goes back and forth um, trying to make up her mind, really, in this series of essays. Um, so it's an, it's an interesting, thoughtful selection I've been watching. Um, 
It is just one open thread on the Facebook Year of Books page. And um, as of right now, it's been more than a week since it was posted. There are 86 comments, which is pretty low. Um, a thousand people have liked that status out of the like 396,000 people who follow the page, I think. And so maybe Facebook is suffering from its own algorithms, not mm. showing not showing very many followers of any given page what's happening there. Well, we but wondered about that, if they would yeah. like sort of make it a special snowflake. And, and you're yeah, saying maybe it looks like it, it hasn't. It does not look like they're making it a special snowflake. There's really not much conversation. Like I've been reading and thinking about what is the thing I might want to say about this book <laughs> in a discussion, but there's not really discussion happening mm. on this Facebook thread. It's like, like half of the half of the 86 comments are pretty much unrelated to the content of the book, which is no surprise if you're familiar with Facebook at all. Um, it's people being like, you can buy this book on my website, or here's a random stat about vaccines that I heard somewhere else. And other people like asking, what is the book about? Um, and if only there was an internet that you could go look to see right. what the book if is. Only if the only the book was called on. Immunity. Yeah. And that you, they gave you the name and the title and everything. Yeah. Um, and so there are a few substantive comments there, but I've basically concluded that I'm not going to spend time no. writing anything substantive. And as I went through it, uh, I think I tweeted it yesterday morning. It is notable that Mark Zuckerberg is absent from Mark Zuckerberg's book club. Um, like this is definitely not how you make yourself the next Oprah. Um, and, and it's not, you're not leading a book club if you're not no. in it, you know? And I wondered, um, if he's been looking at these threads at all or not, if he was it doesn't thinking, seem that way. If he I was can't thinking imagine. of participating, like I kind of went down a rabbit hole yesterday of thinking about what it would have been like if Zuck had gotten in there and started responding to people and being like, oh, yeah, that is an interesting stat about vaccines. And what did you think about uh, like there's a metaphor that runs through the book about vampires. And mm. um, and so what if he had responded to someone about that? And what did you think about this thing? Like if he were in there as a book club leader, I wonder what that would have done to engagement for this thing. But I can I can come up with a billion reasons that he's not participating. It's it's just an interesting thing to be watching. I mm. think that this is like th this isn't a book club. People don't have much knowledge of him as a person the way we do of like Oprah, which is the best analogy that has come up for what he might be trying to do. But there's a huge difference between being a recommender of a book and being a person who is participating and leading a discussion. Well, it and seems I, like what he's doing is not that much different than what happens on people's Facebook walls or Twitter saying, yeah. I'm reading X on Goodreads. That's basically what he's doing, right? right. That's, like, that's all he's saying. There's going to be a live chat with Eulabis um, on the Year of Books Facebook page, I guess, sometime later this week or maybe next week. They just posted the date for it. Um, so she'll be there. And I'm going to try to go and watch mm. and see if he shows up to that. Um but this seems to me, this is one way, like, here's what I'm reading, you all should go read it is a one way thing. Um, and it's interesting to me that the creator of Facebook, who is all about people connecting, has chosen to do sort of a one way. That is interesting. One directional recommendation, which is the kind of thing that we talk about, like book internet being built in opposition to where blogging and Twitter and social media is about two-way communications between different kinds of readers or between book recommenders and the people that come to them for recommendations, like between us and the Book Riot community, where we talk about stuff with them and they talk back to us and there is a back and forth. Um, it, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm not surprised that he's not in there, but I think it's 
super interesting that the guy who built the thing that makes it possible for a billion people to connect with each other is using his own thing in a way that's not about connecting. Well, I... It's interesting that you say that because I, I've been thinking a lot, um, and it's no secret we talk about the podcast, that we're thinking mm-hmm. about trying some sort of online, I, I don't like the term book club, but it, it's probably my own hangups, but read, reading group or community or something like that, which, um, you know, what you can do and what the limitations are. And I've been looking at the extant social networks and what their, their strengths and weaknesses are. Facebook's real strength is that there's a bunch of people on it. That's right. the real strength. As a, as a communication tool, it's not great. And as a discussion tool, it's not great for a lot of the reasons you're seeing here. One is now that there's an algorithm, you don't see everything. So you can't really have a discussion where a lot of the signal in some, you know, upwards of 80%, I don't know if people know this, of the posts of the pages and friends that you have, you're not seeing them because Facebook has this algorithm that's trying to decide to show you the stuff that you're going to be most interested in because they're worried about becoming just sort of an endless wall of spam, which I can understand that, but every decision has consequences. One consequence is there's a lot of gaps in the communication because you're not getting all the packets of information coming through. So the other thing is even before the algorithm change that went from basically everything being shown to everyone who liked the page or friended somebody, which was May 2012, even before that, I don't know about you, but I never really saw a lot of great Facebook conversations happening. Maybe that's just my use case. But there's something about mm-hmm. the way the comments are set up that they're not threaded necessarily. It's very difficult. To, you know, there wasn't tagging for a long time, so you right. couldn't tag yeah. someone. Now I think, that, well, there is tagging and you can thread up to like three replies. Yeah. But beyond that, it gets totally out of control. Um, but you, I also, and you also <laughs> can't, you also can't like pin a post so that you can come right. back to it. You have to like scroll down through your whole freaking thing to go see if any, I mean, it's, it's, it's really bad for conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can you connect, to, you can converse. I think those are you, different things. Right. And if you want to like game the algorithm, you have to first know that there's an algorithm yeah. and then you have to know how it works. Like, um, well, 38% fa- of people, do you see that stat? 38% <laughs> of people use Facebook don't even know they're on the internet. Yeah. Like, Think of how many people don't know there's an algorithm. It's got to be like 109% of people don't know there's an algorithm. I mean, and maybe just by way of saying it, that was a, it was a study. It was in a different country, but it was a study that asked people to talk about like the top things they did on their phone. Yeah. Right. And one was, do you use the internet on your phone? And a bunch of people said no to that question who then said that they loved using Facebook on their phones. (laughs) And it was this weird moment of like, Oh, people don't think about how they're on the internet when they're on Facebook. Well, it's like back in the early days of the internet where like I tell like my, my grandma or something, it's like, well, you get on the internet and find this. Like I don't have the internet. I have a AOL. Yeah. I think the thing that's just perpetually frustrating about Facebook is there are, it's great because everyone you know is there Mm -hmm. and it's terrible because everyone you know is there. And so you have like, like (laughs) I have my parents neighbor who's known me since I was eight, but hasn't really known me since I was 18, you know, who sees my Facebook page and you and professional contacts and friends from college that uh, it's interesting to see what they're up to, but that we're not really in touch anymore. And so how do you get the information that you want to be out to the people that you want it to be out to and also filter things. But it like, if you want to be, if you want something to be more visible to people, you have to put like something in your status update that will make people say congratulations yeah. because Facebook favors 
updates that get lots of congratulations, which is why like when someone gets engaged that you've never thought, yeah, that you haven't thought of in a decade, all of a sudden they're in your Facebook feed because Facebook sees that people are saying congratulations to them. And it's like, oh, this must be important. Let's let's bump it up. So it just it frustrates me that you can do those kinds of things that people can connect. But you can see like what Facebook could have been like with a better set of threaded replies and tagging and ways to have deeper conversations, it could have maybe been a great thing, like how deep you're really going to be able to go into an issue that you care about with the five other people in your social circle that Mm -hmm. care about that issue, while your parent's neighbor is also chiming in is a whole other question. But I don't know, I'm not surprised at all that the Facebook book club thing has gone this way. In hindsight, we should have guessed this. I think in hindsight, this is the most likely outcome from the Facebook being Facebook and people doing what they do on Facebook. And it shows the limitations of Facebook in addition to the ability to push out information to a lot of people. But it's just, I think book club is a misnomer even in this case. Like a bunch of people all reading the same book is just a bunch of people all reading the same book in the same way that like if the New York Times recommends a book and a bunch of people go out and buy it. That's just a bunch of people reading the same book. Like, but we don't know if people are reading it. It looks from the right. comments. I'm just looking at it now that you were talking about. It's like it's like if you had a book club and everyone came saying, "Buy the book we're talking about from my store." Yeah, and or there haven't, you know something else, some other unrelated. The, and since the first selection, there haven't been a bunch of news stories about giant sales spikes no, for the title. There haven't after been. that, so the shine is wearing off, probably because people can see that this isn't really becoming a thing where you can participate and have community and discussion, which, yeah, no surprise given Facebook. And it's also probably a little too fast of a pace Mm -hmm. for each book to be an announcement. Like, I'm already feeling like, oh, there's another one already? There's another one already? So now I'm like, oh, there's another one already. Well, and like, On Immunity is short, um, and you can, it's written in a pretty accessible style, but if you're a person who isn't usually sitting around reading essay collections that are like part philosophy, part history about a thing like vaccines and immunity, then you're not going to read it in one day, mm. even though it's the length. And I saw Zuck say something somewhere online about like, maybe people will like this one because it's short. But like when I was a bookseller and we would do the summer reading tables for school, I would love it every August when kids would come in and it was like three days until the start of school and they hadn't done any of their summer reading yet. And so they would pick up the shortest books on the table and it was inevitably The Stranger and The Heart of Darkness. <laughs> Hmm. You'd be like, oh, yeah, those are short, but, you know, uh, going by the length of the book is not always just the best gauge for how quickly the book can be digested. And so maybe (laughs) Zuckerberg also made a mistake there. To the Lighthouse is only like 220 pages long. You'll get through it. You'll totally understand it right away. No problem. Right. It's... I don't know. It's interesting. I'm, it's a super interesting case study. And it is. You and I both, well, uh, you may, listeners may be into that we are interested in books. Um, we also deal, <laughs> we grapple, I'd say, with Facebook on a daily <laughs> basis. Uh, it's been a huge part of our success and also a constant source of frustration for the algorithmic, you know, it's, they change algorithms all the time and we're trying to adjust and it's very difficult. Anyway, we've, we put a lot of effort into our Facebook community. And the changes they've made don't always help us. Um, so that's frustrating. And it's also like what a public book thing looks like. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, to me, it's like the worst. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I was trying to think of like what what could be done with the tool set given without making it a special snowflake. If you turn the algorithm off, like that's not Facebook, right? That's right. 
that's, you know, having special access. Like, what could you do to make it as interesting as possible? And I really think given the reach of Facebook, it's not gated, and Zuckerberg's personal mm-hmm. reach – and the, the sort of commenting tools available, I don't know that I don't know what a success would have looked well, like in hindsight. Yeah, I think I think they could have done a better job giving it a better shot for success. Like one thread that's open for two weeks. Mm. Most likely that thread only went into people's Facebook streams. Like just a small portion of those three hundred and ninety-six thousand followers even saw mm-hmm. that one update. And we know only eighty-six of them have chosen to comment, and like maybe twenty of those are even somewhat right relevant. So like if I were coming up with the social like the the strategy for this thing, it would have been like okay, a couple times a day, someone is going to like the page is going to post a quote or a question about the book or a link to a story online related to the topic of the book. Like here's, here's an interesting study about immunity and, you know, something that actually would give more opportunities for interaction and community across the course of that two week Mm -hmm. read. Like it was so, I guess more posts with sort of, with more some delineated sort of, purpose. Yeah, and like some hooks into ways mm-hmm. to talk about it, some questions. Somebody from Facebook actually being in there moderating the thing would go yes. a huge way. Like Amanda does an incredible job moderating our Facebook page and, you know, blocking the people who are abusive or who are spammy. Mm-hmm. Um sort of correcting the thought about the ways that we want people to interact on our page and guiding those interactions so that uh, when there is something to be discussed or debated, we can at least try to to get to a place where there's some sort of conversation and back and forth between people. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we do better at it than others. Um, but somebody has to pay attention. Like Facebook as just an unmoderated stream of people saying stuff is almost useless. Yeah, it, um, it is. It's it's super interesting. And um, again, we're actively thinking about and probably we'll try something this summer of our own kind of reading experience, online reading experience. Um, Discussion, I, I now sound like something. a hippie. Um, <laughs> but if you've got a good idea or a bad idea, even bad ideas can be helpful or just any kind of thing that you would want to see in it. Um, if you think you yourself would be interested in it, I think I said on the previous show with Amanda, that would probably be a couple bucks a month. Like it would be a subscription so that we don't have to worry about selling ads. So we don't have to do a million page views to like pay for it because we're a business and we pay staff to do stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, if it's going to be a thing, we'd like to know. But if you're interested, if you think you might be interested, just a show of hands is helpful. But also if you've got ideas, because we'll probably try some things out. Some of it will work, some won't. But, yeah, we'll um, throw We'll throw some spaghetti at the sk- wall. Yeah, spaghetti at but the wall. But if we at least know um, to throw the right kind of pasta, maybe it'll have a better chance of sticking. Okay. Um, so when, when Amanda and I were talking last week, this is my segue time. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm, I'm um, girded. We were joking that the only thing that Zuckerberg could have chosen that would have been more relevant to what people were currently mm. talking about on Facebook than oh, well vaccines done. would have been Fifty Shades of Grey. Well, very well done. That's um, that's Yeoman's work there. Thank you. So the, the movie's been out for a while, and uh, I just, in my perusing of the internet... Um, it's only been out for 12 days, 12 Jeff. Days. It came out on Valentine's Day. I guess Day. that's true. Time is moving fast. Because obviously Valentine's Day. Um, so... This was actually this is I'm sure the numbers are even bigger now because this this story is from February 22nd. But um, the box office take for Fifty Shades Grey that's what we're talking about uh, domestically. Um, a, the 10 day total was 130 million dollars, mm-hmm. which is like Avengers, not quite Avengers, but like it's big action movie. 
dollars. Like that's a big time dollar, especially for mm-hmm. a movie that can have cost that much to make. Like there's not, you know, there's not a lot of special effects. The lead actor, you know, it's not like you're paying um, Jennifer Lawrence and Tom Cruise salaries to these folks. Oh, just hang on. Give me a minute to think about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's not actually. Um, and then overseas, it did um, more. And so the, did. the total 10-day t- take was was uh, $413 million, <laughs> almost a half a billion dollars in global sales. You know, I hadn't really thought about the international market. I don't know what Fifty Shades has sold internationally. I know it's done well in the UK, mm-hmm. um, but I'm, there must be Spanish language editions and maybe there are Dutch ones and Italian ones. I don't really know yeah. the answer to that. Hmm. Um, but this is, if you wondered if it was just a U.S. phenomenon, at least cinematically, it is not. This is a yeah. this is a monster. This is going to be a this billion a dollar movie by the time it comes out. Sensation. By the time it comes out on DVD, it it's, did fall considerably. I don't know if people know this, but usually, like a big movie that opens big will fall thirty to forty percent, fifty percent maybe from the first weekend to the second weekend. And, and this one fell seventy three percent, which suggests that the the demand was front loaded, which means people who really wanted to see it went out and got well, there. It was the tickets for opening night and opening weekend were selling out like weeks in advance. Yeah. Um, Amanda and I were trying to plan a time to go see it with um, with Swapna, who edits panels and was coming down from D.C. for the weekend. And we were like, well, should we how should we buy our tickets early? Like, are we going to be able to go see it? And we got snowed out. So I have not yet. I did read the book, um, but so I have not yet seen this yeah. movie. I cannot report uh, about the experience. From all yet, I've but, heard that the movie is not very good. You know, yeah, I, and I, you know, I have to say, I don't think that people were going to see what they thought was going to be a great movie. Like, uh, the link we're no. looking at right now is um, is from IMDb, and the top comment points out that it's only rated twenty five percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, the, the even the people who really loved Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, loved sort of the things that happened between the characters, but it was widely acknowledged that like the dialogue is stilted and some the writing is very repetitive. Mm-hmm. Anna does the same things. Over and over, there's this whole inner goddess running bit where, like, the inner sensual part of her argues with the, like, inner good girl and they can't decide what she's going to do. And um, it's, I don't know, for me, nothing about reading the book led to, like, oh, this will be you know, a, a good movie to watch, mm-hmm. but this is an entertainment experience. And, like, I, you know, I, I've read a bunch of pieces about groups of women getting together to go with their girlfriends and see Fifty Shades of Grey, which like is exactly why I'm in it. I'm going to put a flask in my purse and go. Yeah, um, no, I, and that's absolutely right. I'm just saying that if the movie was, if people liked the movie, that could have gone and, you know, some fence sitters mm-hmm. that could have been brought like, oh, I wasn't sure about the movie, uh, but I right. hear it's good. And that's what generally happens. You know, the classic case of like a sleeper hit is like the opening weekend, no one goes to see it, but the reviews are great mm-hmm. or the word of mouth is great. And so that it actually increases over time. A big blockbuster like, you know, like let's say like the Avengers, right? A lot sure. of hype to it. Good movie um, for what it was. Actually doesn't fall off as much, but still falls off because so many people go to it opening weekend. Right. This I mean, I guess the worst case scenario is that no one goes to see it on opening weekend and then no one ever goes to see it again. Right. Yeah. But I wonder for a movie with this much hype, 73% drop off is about as much as you can possibly see. That's true. I wonder what DVD sales are going to be like for this. I like, don't know. does anybody want to own Fifty Shades of Grey? Oh, I'm sure someone does. Half, <laughs> half a billion dollars have been spent seeing the theater, some meaningful percentage of that. Uh, people want to buy. I mean, Jamie Dornan is a persuasive argument in mm. and of himself, I think, for 
going to watch this thing. So anyway, um, that's the that's the. But that's uh, me. <laughs> that's oh sure great. Um, uh, that's the deal with the movie. It was a a hit, Huge. but a, a hit that seems to have petered off pretty and quickly. I guess it's always worth saying again that we continue to talk about Fifty Shades of Grey because it is a huge phenomenon. Oh, like people continue to get mad at no, us anytime on. we talk about Fifty Shades of Grey anywhere on the site. Um, one of our contributors, Wallace, who runs our Instagram account, posted recently on Instagram that she was finally reading it. Like she had made several attempts and she had decided this was the time she was going to buckle down and read Fifty Shades of Grey. And there was more and more severe harassment and it was harassment mm -hmm. on on that post um then on almost anything else we've ever yeah, done it's, it was um, really remarkable people who told her that uh, not only who insulted her taste but people who called her all kinds of names for for reading a book um and i get it like uh, there are problems and criticisms to be made about 50 shades of gray but you don't have to like it for the fact to remain a fact that the book has been bigger than any other book phenomenon in our lifetime as readers in terms of sales, in terms of the kind of press that it's generated, in terms of the public debates about it. And so it's going to continue to be a thing that we pay attention to because it's a huge thing. Huge, huge, a huge story. And my memory, and I've, I remember seeing some of the numbers because I the UK, the bookseller over in the UK, and then Publishers Weekly, we've talked mm -hmm. about annual sales before. When the numbers for the year Fifty Shades of Grey came out, which I think was 2012, yeah. that's when it came out, there is, even in the trilogy, there was a pretty significant drop off in sales from the first to second to third installments mm -hmm. of the series. So I'm, I'm, they're, uh, they're sure, certainly going to make a second. Fifty the, What's the second one called? I have no idea. I can't remember. Um, there's Fifty Shades Darker, I think, and Fifty Shades Freed, but I, I think that's the order. Yeah, so I'm the sure freed. they'll make them both, but I wouldn't expect them to make nearly as much money. Um, but yeah. I could be wrong about that. All They're right. definitely going to roll on with, with making these. Well, like, they can't, again, they can't cost that much to make. They're just like sitting around no, and, and talking and being weird. And there's, you know, yeah, there's demand and audience for it. It would be like making the third Harry Potter movie and then being like, oh, well, we're not going to make the fourth. Like, <laughs> yeah. You just can't, you, you just can't not do it. Oh, you can. I mean, they made the golden compass and didn't make the rest. I mean, you can make a this start of a series, but there's so much well, demand. Well, you can, but like the demand, that's yeah, what I mean, yeah. is that the demand is there um, in this, you know, for this series. Um, and you don't have to like that for it to be true. Did you guys talk, I can't remember, did you guys talk about the Sherlock Holmes story last week? We didn't. We didn't. We didn't get so, to it. I think it broke right after we recorded the yeah, show. So we've gone through several cycles. So the story broke that um, this guy found a long lost Sherlock Holmes story mm -hmm. in his attic. Like this is the kind of story that you like make up, right? That someone's like poking around the records. Oh, look, here's this short story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, but this was this guy who lives in the Scottish town of Selkirk. And there was a, a hundred years ago, there was a, a big flood there. And there was a charity sort of pamphlet book made to help raise money for, um, rebuilding the town and specifically the bridge. And Doyle contributed a short 1,300-word home story to it. It's like a pre-Kickstarter Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, kind of. That, that was the reward. And there weren't that many of them made. And uh, apparently all extant copies had been lost. And this guy found one. Mm -hmm. And so that was the big news. 
And then in days hence, uh, it's come to, to be some question about whether or not this is actually written by Doyle. It's, clearly, it's, it's a Sherlock Holmes story, like it yeah. is. But apparently it's written from a different sort of perspective, um, an unnamed first-person perspective. Mm-hmm. And even the title of it raises some questions. Mm-hmm. It's not the same way that Conan Doyle titled his stories. Um, there's the Electric Literature did a did sort of an expose um, of all the pieces of evidence yeah. that lead them to think this was not written by Arthur Conan Doyle. And it's on the pamphlet. It doesn't list him as the author, nor does it list him as a contributor. Though I guess he was speaking at one of the events, so he's listed as a speaker. Um, why wasn't he given direct credit there? And you know these stories. You know, these story, this this stuff happens. There have been lots of Holmes story imitators and forgeries. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't seem to pass the smell test. Um, again, in the, all, in the long run, I guess it doesn't really matter. If it was, a, if yeah. it's, I mean, it's not a great story. It's short. Like it doesn't yeah, it's change a, the canon or anything like right, that. Right. It's kind of a dull story. And so for a little bit of time, people getting excited and tweeting about it turned what's basically a work of fan fiction by, mm-hmm. you know, a story about Sherlock Holmes by someone who's not uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, turning it in, turned it into a sensation for a bit. But when you put on your Sherlock thinking hat, yeah. If you know anything about Sherlock, which I don't really, so I just have to trust the experts here uh, that this is not a particularly good story and not likely to be a real uh, Sherlock story. But it's this. It feels like we're in a weird antiques roadshow <laughs> moment in publishing. <laughs> like what else? Yeah, because we got the um, we got the Seuss book you guys talked about. Uh-huh. Um, we've got, of course, we've got the atomic bomb of um, Ghost of the Watchmen. I guess maybe there's just a lot more stuff in people's houses than we think. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe so. Anyway, so that that was an interesting story to see come out. All right, what else we want to do here? Um, Let's talk about this penguin thing. Yeah, talk. Walk me through this. So, Penguin Books um, it has is celebrating the 80th anniversary of the first, uh, the Little Black Classics for 80. Is that pence? Yeah. Each. Yeah. So this is a thing that I guess they're doing. You can go to littleblackclassics.com and it makes this wheel. Um, and then you click on the little penguin on the wheel and it spins the wheel and picks one of the 80 of the penguin little black classics that you you do. And it shows you a page and then a little information about one of them. So I've just clicked on the random generator thing we'll while we're talking right now. Notes. Yeah. And it's um, at littleblackclassics.com, but we'll put a link in. And so it spun me around to HG Wells, a slip under the microscope, mm. which is number 77 out of their 80 little black classics. And then when you click on that, it takes you into a quote. So I've got, I will go in out of this dust and heat, out of this dry glitter of vanity, out of these toilsome futilities. I will go and never return, which is a quote from the story, um, a slip under the microscope. And then you can spin it again. You spin the little penguin. It takes you to something else. The Old Man of the Moon by Shen Fu and another quote there. Um, And then if that sounds appealing to you, you can click on your shopping cart and you can order one of these penguin little black classics, which uh, the title comes from the design of the books. They are black paperbacks with a really recognizable black spine and the little penguin logo down there. A lot of collectors have walls of them. 
Unabridged Bookstore in Chicago has like a whole wall dedicated to these Penguin classics. And it's just row after row mm. of those black spines with the pretty little logos. And it's just satisfying and, and gorgeous. So if this is the kind of thing that sounds interesting to you or you don't read a lot of classics and you want a fun way to discover, I think this was a, a good publisher attempt at uh, making an interesting, it's beautiful, it it's well-designed. And it's low friction. Like all you got to do is click it recommends a random one of these 80 books to you. It gives you a quote. You can decide you're interested or you can just move the penguin and get another random recommendation. Um, I hope that they'll talk about how well it works. Like I would love, they'll, they probably won't because they never do, but I would love to know how many books this thing sells. We'll never know. We'll nope. never know. Um, it's pretty, I mean, I don't know. You, th you think it transcends gimmick? I don't know. I mean, I was intrigued by the quotes I got. I don't, I mean, I don't know. These kinds of things don't usually work on me as a reader. Like I like to see them and I think it's a beautifully designed thing, but it's not how I find stuff to read. And yeah. so I, I wonder. I guess that's it is like who they imagine that's going to be, I mean, I guess we're talking about it and maybe it's not so much that people are actually going to buy it through this thing, but they'll remember it. And so when they see the row of black classics on the bookstore, like, mm -hmm. Hey, I know that thing. And they'll right. go and pick something out. So it could be more of a branding play than they actually like, oh, yeah, I just found Beautiful Cassandra by yeah. Jane Austen. I'll get in right. a click and order that right now. And these Penguin classics are one of the few cases of like publisher or imprint mm. branding yes. that seems to have worked. Like we've heard a ton about that in publishing over the last few years of as there's been less, there, there are fewer middlemen between publishers and readers. And so publishers have been trying to figure out how they can sell to readers directly. And one of the things that a lot of publishers have been fixated on is branding, not just the publisher, but their specific imprints, which do different kinds of books to readers. And for the most part, our perspective has been readers don't really pay attention to the imprints. They don't really care. Like, I only know which imprints publish which books because it's part of my job mm -hmm. to think about that. Um, but, you know, I think most people are just out like they're, you're, you know, you're in your local store, you're at Barnes and Noble, you're shopping on Amazon, you're picking a book that sounds interesting. You're not like, oh, that's from Harper Perennial. Right. Um, where these penguin classics are recognizable and you sort of, you, you know what you're getting there. It's a classic piece of literature. It's going to be beautifully packaged. Um, Melville house does this with their novella series. Their branding on that is recognizable. And the New York review of books does some classics that also have, you know, a, a very similar imprint branding. But I think aside from that, very few publisher brands are recognizable to most readers. Very few readers care about, which publisher their book is coming from. But this is this is a smart play for Penguin, if for nothing else than reminding people that these are out there and you've probably got a few of them on your shelves. And, oh, hey, if there's another classic mm -hmm. that you're looking for, maybe we have it. As, as far as like a discovery tool, I don't know. I mean, I, I talk to humans about books that they're reading. Yeah, I agree. Um, that makes a lot. It, it's, it is pretty. And someone will do something interesting along these lines at mm -hmm. some point. Point. Um, I'm just not sure what it is. Uh, let's do one more story before we get to new books. And this is a story that came out in the Times this week, assessing the health of independent bookstores. Um, I don't know why now, especially this story came out. I guess there was new data released from the Booksellers Association. I, I mm -hmm. don't know why. All of a sudden in February. Um, yeah. The, well, the ABA had their Winter Institute oh, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, that's probably what it was. Yeah. Which is like the annual gathering of independent booksellers. And they usually do some stats. 
stuff. So this is stat stuff about independent bookstores here and abroad. Um, I think we've talked about on the show a little bit that independent bookstores over the last few years have seen a bit of an uptick in mm -hmm. uh, health. Their, their pulse is a little stronger. Their breathing isn't quite as shallow. Um, <laughs> and in fact, since 2009, the number of independent bookstores in the U.S. has increased 27% from about 1,600 to just over 2,000. Yep. So that's pretty good. That pretty is good. pretty good. In Britain and Ireland, they're down 25% over the same stretch from mm -hmm. just about 1,250 to a little under 1,000. And the French have held pretty much steady plus 5% at um, just about from going from 2,100 to about 2,300 over the same period. If you are interested, um, France has about 65 million people and about the same number of bookstores as the U uh, independent bookstores as the U.S., which has about 320 million people. So about five times as many independent bookstores per capita uh, as the U.S., um, this is good. It, it jives with a lot of what we've been hearing and feeling that, you know, a lot of the bookstores we know have been opening up other branches, which I think has been interesting. Uh -huh. I'd be curious to know what percentage of this growth is satellite sister stores, you know, new locations of existing bookstores and which ones are, um, you know, whole mm -hmm. new, out of new whole cloth. Um, this, this graph changes a lot if you extend it back. Sure. Um, but they say that this is about the health of independent bookstores. I think this is about something else. Um, 2009 to 2010, the growth was flat in the U.S. And then in 2010, we uptick a few hundred and a few hundred more every year since then. 2010, that's when Borders closed. Mm -hmm. And in the years since, Barnes & Noble has been closing a lot of, um, of its big branch stores. Uh, several in New York have closed, notably several, a, a lot around the country. Probably you have a store close to mm -hmm. you that's closed. Yeah, a couple of the ones in Richmond have closed. So I think what's happened here is I don't know that so much that independent bookstores are healthier just in, organically, but I think they're they're sliding in and filling in some of that lost space of those mm -hmm. bookstores yeah, that have that's, closed. And that echoes um, Oren Teicher, who's the CEO of the American Booksellers Association says something similar here that he thinks indies have filled the vacuum that's been left by the closing of borders and the closing of many Barnes and Noble mm -hmm. stores, um, you know, sort of stepping in there um, to fill those. So I, I would, I think that would be an interesting map to see also how many of these new stores have opened this 27% increase, how many of those are in places that lost a big box and how many of them are in places that just maybe didn't have a, a bookstore at all before. Um, we have a friend who's thinking about opening a bookstore in a place that's currently a book desert mm -hmm. where there's not a store within a hundred miles. How many people are doing things like that? It would be interesting. Like, I think you're right that some of this is people who lost their local borders or their local Barnes and Noble and still want a brick and mortar store to go into. And now there are new indies that are serving that need. But I'm curious about where, you know, where else it might be coming from. Um, this is a good one to put in our file of reasons the sky is not falling. Yes, it's a good file. And, um, you know, I think that's what's interesting is that I, I would like to see a scatter map of where independent bookstores are. Um, I don't think it would come to surprise anyone that they're largely coastal and in urban areas, college towns. They also tend to be, I think, and I, I would, I'd like to know if I'm wrong about this, but intended to be in more affluent zip codes. Didn't we do um, 
I think we played a game with a publisher's weekly graph a couple yeah, years ago. Yeah, that was, um, that was uh, bookstores per capita ah. by state. Mm-hmm. Um, and weirdly, I was just tweeting about this other day as I was reading the story and I was doing my homework that, you know, you'd think a state like New York would come out relatively well, but it's actually 49th out of 50th in bookstores per capita. Right. Because um, they get clustered in New York. And uh, if you've been to New York, you may or may not know that good luck finding a bookstore outside of like two subway stops into the outer boroughs. Like we talked about that story mm-hmm. where that one Barnes and Noble in the Bronx was going to close and there'd be effectively zero bookstores in the Bronx, right. which is like three and a half million people um, all of a sudden. And I think if we did a scatter plot, you would see like, you know, uh, if you're in Western Kansas, um, the great state of Kansas from which I hail, it, you can go hundreds of miles without a bookstore of any mm-hmm. kind. Where in, you know, if you live in uh, Ann Arbor, Seattle, Portland, um, you're going to get uh, quite a bit more. So it's hard to say, like, that's one reason a lot of people like independent bookstores or the lifeblood of, of whatever. I'm just like, I just, it, there's not enough of them really to reach and really make a difference for, you know, most people. And libraries are just so much more important that way. And there's just also not, there's just a lot of places that don't have access mm-hmm. um, in that way. So well, and, it's it's tricky still- to know. And they still remain, what, like 3 to 4% of the total book sales yeah. market. Which For midlist uh, literary fiction, of which you and I are particularly interested, yeah. they're a much larger And there are part. immeasurable, tri- like impossible to measure trickle-down yes. effects, most likely, that um, diehard readers who go into their locals regularly and get recommendations from booksellers who are reading not just the front list stuff or not just the best big, you know, the highest mm-hmm. sellers, but things like midlist literary fiction that they think have a big chance to catch on. You know, if I walk into the fountain in downtown Richmond and Kelly, who owns it, is like, here's a book that just came out. It's really fantastic. You're going to love it. This book should be a big deal. I trust her. I buy the thing. Um, if I start talking about it and recommending it to friends, even if I'm the only one in that huge group that bought the book from an indie, there the book can still be like the life of that book can still be impacted by the recommendations, the recommending power, yeah. I guess the curatorial power of independent booksellers. And it's, it's a challenging thing to try to map or measure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we've mentioned like, this is how water for elephants broke out was indie booksellers putting it into people's hands and presumably like book club leaders were shopping at their indies, getting the book and picking it for their book clubs. Yeah. But not everybody in their book club was buying it from indies. To they use still a, only got to use a um, horribly jingoistic sort of marketing term, influencers often yeah. shop at independent bookstores or work there or pay attention to what's going on there. I think it's the ongoing struggle I have in my own mind about whether or not the health of independent bookstores are a satellite to the health of reading culture or part of the mainland. And Mm -hmm. I'm just not sure. I don't know. It could be either one. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was either. Like if the number of independent went to bookstores went to zero, Probably the reading landscape would be different, but would it be would it be a, a mortal wound, um, or would it just be sort of a, a change in topography? Or you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. But I don't think there's really any way of reading badness into twenty seven percent plus. Right, right. Um, in fourteen years, I guess maybe you could argue. Well, Borders went away, and Barnes and Noble's closing stores. Maybe that number should be even higher. I guess you could argue that. Uh, if you wanted to, but I find it difficult to argue mm-hmm. that myself. 
Um, anyway, so that's very interesting. Also, that's that Britain and Ireland. The reason they they give for the negative twenty five percent there is they still have to compete with Amazon. I guess they haven't lost a major chain. You know, mm-hmm. they still have major chain. And in general, land and occupancy prices in the UK is higher um, yeah. than it is in most of North America. Like, okay, New York and San Francisco very expensive, but if you're in my hometown of Lawrence, Kansas, not as bad as being even in the sort of third or fourth largest city uh, in London because we've got a lot more space a lot less dense. So the real estate is not quite as expensive. So, um, yeah, I thought that's worth talking about and we're going to keep an eye on that. And it it does, I think as much as anything, it resonates with the sort of a feeling we have about what's going on with independent bookstores. It's always nice to get some uh, corroboration of that. We better get to new books. Let's, we better, let's talk one quick, we don't have, we only have one sponsor this week, but we thought we have a little bit more information we can dole out to you about Book Riot Live. The tickets are going on sale on March 10th at 1 PM Eastern. Um, and uh, the first 250 tickets are are significantly discounted. And to this point, we haven't talked about the prices. We've got authorization from on high that we can talk about ticket prices. So it's a two-day event. Manhattan. No. What? Sorry? November 7th no, and 8th. No, November 7th and 8th. And um, uh, here in, in New York. And it's the the standard ticket price is $169 for all access to everything during the day. And if you're one of the first 250 ticket buyers, there's 119 bucks. So it's kind of our way of saying, if you're a huge super fan of the site and you want to pay attention, you listen to the podcast, you follow us on Twitter and everything like that, we're going to get cracked to get 50 bucks off the ticket. There are about 1,300 tickets available to attendees. We got to save some for our staff and the speakers and vendors and things like that. March 10th, we're also going to unveil sort of the first wave of people who are going to be joining us as guests. Oh, and it's so I, good. I asked Rebecca before the show, could we stay? And she's like, no, we better not. And I'm like, but, but Rebecca, and we can't. Soon, maybe by next week. Well, we'll I don't be know. We'll to. have to decide with the way we want to we'll do it. What's the most fun way to do this? But there's, there's like I said before, there's, a, there's going to be some names you know, there's going to be some names you don't know, and there's a couple, you know, there's going to be things announced even after tickets go on sale. Here's one thing to say about it, a couple things to say about it. One is we're not going after. It's a small event, and we want to keep it small um, because that's more fun. You get to meet other attendees. You're not standing in line the whole time. It's, you, you can you know you can find a bathroom. You can find a seat. You can mm-hmm. talk to people. So. so to do that, you can't really to make that work. Get say uh, I'm trying to think of who are the well. As much as we would like to have a Dan Brown happy hour, right? Or you know even like someone like John Green or Rowling, like that would just like break the space. Sure. Um, or even somebody that. like Cheryl Strait yeah, would be, yeah, yeah. you know, too big of a draw. So, so we've been thinking about it being uh, sort of conceptualizing it as being the authors that you love, that you've seen on Book Riot, the authors that we love, um, plus authors that maybe you haven't heard of yet or you've yeah. heard of them but not read them yet, but that are going to be your new favorites once you've had a chance. So it's kind of like the idea is like we're kind of threading this needle of if you're a book lover – you're going to be way more excited about these people than sort of the average person out there. Where the average person out there, they know who Rowling is. They know who Dan Brown is, right? They know, they know John Grisham. Gar- we're not, that's not who this is for. Um, and also, you know, we're going to have a lot of our staff, people who want to meet a lot of the fans, a lot of the readers, have more access to the authors and do a lot of different kinds of things in smaller groups that you can't do if it's like 10,000 um, attendees and, you know, you have a keynote that's like 5,000 people and it's Neil Gaiman speaking up there. That's not what this is about. Uh, it's going to be intimate. It's going to be fun. Um, and we're really looking forward to it. So that's that's um, the information we have for you now. If you've got other questions, I'll answer what I can at podcast at bookriot.com, but everything we 
have available will be available on March 10th, which is coming up soon. It uh, is. And that, that switch from February to March feels like a, yep. it's a huge leap. It's but. always a surprise with February being so short. So that's coming um, up soon. And yeah, and I guess it's just worth repeating that, that your ticket is all access. Yes. This isn't like uh, there will be some authors that are fancy and you have to pay extra to see them that day. Um, you're 119, you're 119 bucks if you're in the first 250 people, or you're 169 if you're in the group after that. Get you in the door, and when you're in the door, you can do anything so that no is available VIP in that space. Yeah, there's that stuff. no line jumping, no special snowflake yeah. card that you can carry. Um, I'm sure you're a special snowflake, but. We're all going to just be normal snowflakes together. We're all special um, snowflakes we together. We are. But. That's what it'll be. We'll all just be special snowflakes together, but no one will be the specialist snowflake. Mm -hmm. um, and there will be some cool evening events as well that might be extra. Some will be extra tickets. Some will be free things. But we're going to do a full weekend of great stuff. You and I are going to record a live we version are. of the podcast. So if you're interested in what it looks like when we're trying to figure out what to do with our hands and how to not look at each other while figuring things out. <laughs> Yeah, we'll figure out. We can take questions or maybe have an audience feel. I don't want to do something a little bit different that time. Yeah. But uh, we're going to be doing that. And um, a lot of cool stuff happening. And uh, we're, I'm, ex I'm getting excited. I wish it were November already. It's going to be fun. Um, so, all right, tell me about some new books. Okay, so new books this week. The first one is Girl in a Band. It's a memoir by Kim Gordon, who was a founding member of Sonic Youth. Um, so this is kind of solidly in the Generation X wheelhouse. Mm. Uh, she grew up in California in the 60s and 70s. She's also a visual artist, moved to New York City, you know, has had just a fascinating life, um, not only in this band, but fascinating relationships and a family. And, you know, it, this is for readers of like Patti Smith's Just Kids, mm. that kind of that kind of feeling. I'm seeing lots of love for it. Um, I'm certainly going to pick this one up. I think it might be great on audio at some point. I love is she narrating it? memoirs on audio. I don't know. Mm. I haven't looked, okay. um, but that would be great too. Also, it just has this really great appealing cover. Um, so sort of, you know, cultural icon, tell all memoir. It's getting awesome reviews. I'm really looking forward to that. Girl in a Band, Kim Gordon. Uh, Mohsin Hamid, who's a, a well-known novelist, wrote a book um, several years ago called The Reluctant Fundamentalist yeah. and had another novel out last year, has a book of essays called Discontent and Its Civilizations. Oh, uh, that's the opposite of the Freud. That's interesting. Yes. yes. Yeah, it's a nice inversion. Uh, and these are... Um, He's called three different countries on three different continents home. He's from Pakistan. Um, he's lived in Britain and uh, he's also lived in New York. And so this is uh, sort of personal essays mixed with cultural observations. Um, he talks about like courtship rituals and pop culture, um, drones, what it's like living a daily life in a family compound and sort of a, a mix of Eastern and Western culture and um, what it's like to be not a man without a country, but a man with three countries. Mm. Um, in in the contemporary world. He's a great writer, um, it, you know, an intellectual sort of one of our public thinkers now. And I'm really looking forward to reading that as well. So Discontent and Its Civilizations. I find that title very appealing. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally be sold on a clever title. I'm going to be picking that one up. And out in paperback this week is Redeployment by ah. Phil Clay debut collection of short stories that won the National Book Award. This year, Phil Clay is a Marine. He's a veteran of the Iraq War. And uh, each 
This was one of my favorite books of last year, and I know I've talked about it on the show, but um, each story in the collection is from the perspective of a different person who is involved either indirectly or tangentially in the military during the Iraq war. And, and some of them are from people in different military positions, and some are from perspectives of those people's partners who are at home waiting for them or who are at home when they return from war and you know are trying to get themselves back into their daily life there, what that adjustment is like. It's, I, I was knocked out by how he could imagine himself into so many different experiences of such a nuanced and complicated thing. Um, and war novels are a kryptonite of mine. Um, I thought it was really, really phenomenal, especially, you know, if you were, if you enjoyed all the big Iraq war novels that we got in, um, in 2013 with Billy Lynn and Fobbit and the yellow, the yellow birds, um, redeployment is a nice way to keep going and thinking about those things from another perspective. So it's out in paperback. Mm. And those are new books this week. That's awesome. And that's our show. That's our show. Uh, as always, you can email us podcast at bookwrite.com. If you want to ask about Book Riot Live, you've got a hundredth episode question. If you've got feedback for us on book clubs, um, what you'd like to see in some sort of book riot reading club-like object, uh, or what you wouldn't like to see. And if you'd just be interested in all, I'd like to know that. Um, also, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at the Jeff O'Neill, O-N-E-L. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Book Riot's on Twitter all the time. We're often looking at that. Uh, what am I missing? Show notes, bookriot.com slash podcast. I, I, thanks so much to Scribd for sponsoring the show. Um, yeah, go to good, Scribd. Good sponsor, go to Scribd.com slash bookwrite. That's S-C-R-I-B-D. There you go. We'll be back next week. We will. That's the nice thing about one week is there's a one right after it. <laughs> It'll be March then. It will? Oh, yeah. glory be. It will. Glory it be. will be March. Welcome, March. Welcome, old friend. <laughs> All right, Brecca, talk to you later. Have a good one. Bye.